on? All right. Well, if you're in the sanctuary still, you can make, or in the fellowship hall, if you're in the sanctuary, you're in the right place. Uh, if you're in the fellowship hall, you can make your way into the sanctuary. Be sure to grab a bulletin on your way in. If you didn't get a calendar, there are still some left at the uh, table where we keep the bulletins. Uh, that's our summer calendar that just has all of the different items since we've, we're not doing Sunday school and we're not doing Tuesday night fellowship. We've replaced those items with other events. Um, and so you can, you'll, you'll want to have one of those. Um, they're not on the website yet, but I'm going to go over those in a little bit. Let me just also remind you with some of the things that we have in our bulletin. We have um, an opportunity for you to join uh, our church and other churches in the Central Valley with, um, in prayer. It's called Fresno Praise. This is actually a national movement. I think it's called America Praise. Um, but every city kind of does their own version of it. And what we're doing is trying to have as many churches um, on board to simply pray for the needs of the community. Um, like this last month, we prayed for Ukraine. That was sort of the prayer focus. We learned some things about the situation of the church in Ukraine, and the challenges they're facing right now, and how we can pray specifically for them. So that's the, the kind of the, the nature of the topics. Um, but we will inform you of those topics and, and let you know. We just uh, would love to have anyone who's interested in joining us um, for prayer to sign up, let me know and I'll forward the information to you. Uh, the other announcement is that we have our potluck Sunday. We had our potluck breakfast this morning. We'll have that on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, typically it's lunch after the worship service, but for the summer uh, we're, doing, we're shifting it to breakfast. So we had breakfast, there's still plenty in there, but I'm not dismissing you to go get that yet. But after the service, you might be able to nuke up some, some of the food and there's plenty of donuts and stuff like that. So there should be uh, plenty for snacks later but be aware of that next the next one will be um, in July and then we'll have that again in August so July 3rd is the first Sunday um, and we'll have breakfast here all right and then the other thing the halls aren't here this morning but um, Tom Halls is a professional photographer and has offered to take photos for us to put together a photo directory for the church you don't have to have your photo in it, um, but it's something that would help a lot of us uh, remember names and, and get to know one another. So we'll be taking pictures here uh, next Sunday and then for three Sundays, for the next three Sundays. So June 12th, 19th, and 26th. Um, just come in your Sunday best, ready to go, and we'll, he's gonna set up the uh, somewhere outside. So it should be fine on the, with lighting and everything. But if you are interested in doing that, it would help him to know how many families he has on particular Sundays. So he's given you those three Sundays to kind of spread out the, the need um, and to accommodate you if you're out of town one week. But it would really be helpful for him to, to prepare for that. So just send him an email. Let him know that your family is, is available. And if you're available for several Sundays, let him know that too, just so that he can slot you in um, where, where it's most convenient, okay? Um, so that information's there in your bulletin. Lastly, again, you don't have this calendar in this week's bulletin. There are a few left, but there's a summer calendar that we're following for events um, during the week, and the women's study is beginning this Tuesday, 
at the Frap House from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. They've got a book by Ian Hamilton on 1 John that you should get. It's got a study guide built into it, and so you'll be able to read it, uh, read the commentary ahead of time, answer the questions as best you can on your own, and then get together with the group and, and go through it. But we don't have all the books. We only have like four. Uh, we ordered them weeks ago, but they didn't have as many on hand. So we're hoping to get them soon. But what you'll want to do is uh, just go to this. If you're interested, just show up, even if you don't have the book yet. And, um, and whoever's first come, first serve will get a book. Uh, and they'll go over the introduction material together. Um, and then map out how they're going to do the rest later on. But if you have any questions about the women's study, talk to my wife, Carrie, um, or one of the other ladies that is leading that. Lastly, uh, we have our all-swim day available. Uh, so just bring a sack lunch. It's from 11 to 2 at the Ladayev's house. Heather is here, so if you have any questions about that or need directions, you can see them or one of us can get you that, that address. But that's, the whole family's welcome to, to go. Just bring your own food and uh, from 11 to two at the, uh, at the Ladayevs, the, I believe they're having one of those every week, right? Looks like rotating homes. So um, I'm not the one to ask apparently. But anyways, let's go ahead and prepare our hearts for worship. Just a reminder too, uh, you're visiting be sure to fill out this card. We'd love to get to know you. Um, if you're a regular attender here or a member, you can also use this to add any prayer requests for us. Um, we'd love to know how we can serve you. So take some time now to prepare your hearts for worship. invite you to stand. Our call to worship is from 2 Samuel 22. I'll read the light print and we'll read the bold together. The Lord is your rock and your fortress and your deliverer, your God, your rock in whom you take refuge. Call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. In my distress, I call upon the Lord. To my God, I call. From your temple, O Lord, hear my voice and my cry. And Heavenly Father, we do know that you are a loving Father, a gracious Father, a kind Father who does hear our prayers. Lord, you invite us to come before you, and so often, Lord, we, we don't come. So often we come with, without thinking. Lord, we come without, um, with, with just distractions on our mind, with uh, with, Lord, hearts that are, are cold. And so, Lord, we want to ask that you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. Lord, cause us 
to be attentive to your work. Lord, to warm our spirit as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we sit under your preaching, Lord, we ask that you would do a work that you alone are capable of doing. And we pray that we would be transformed in the process, that we would be edified and equipped, that we would leave here, Lord, worshiping you and continuing to carry on worship throughout this day that you've given us, that you've set apart to rest. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be honored and glorified even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our opening hymn is hymn 340, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. What a privilege it is to be in the house of the Lord. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan is perhaps the most well-known story outside the Bible-believing world. It is also perhaps the least understood parable within the Bible-believing world. The passage this morning is presented to us in three parts. Uh, first, we have the setting or the occasion in verses 25 to 29. We have the parable itself in verses 30 to 35. And then the conclusion 
is in the final two verses, 36 and 37. Before we read the text, let me offer a quick overview and, and in fact, let's, let's begin with prayer. Father, again, thank you, gracious, loving Father, who called us a friend. Lord, be with us this morning. Open our eyes and our heart to hear your word, your infallible and inerrant word. Amen. So again, let me give you a quick overview before we, we dig into the text. Again, the occasion or the setting of the parable we find in verses 25 to 29. Uh, Jesus is questioned here two times by a lawyer. You see that in verse 25 and 29. And with the first question, the lawyer is seeking to test Jesus. And with the second question, he seeks to justify himself. Jesus answers the first question with a question and then gives a command following the lawyer's correct answer. Jesus then responds to the lawyer's second question with the parable. The parable itself, as I said, is in verses 30 to 35, and the direct focus of the parable is to answer the lawyer's self-justifying question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus is also addressing the lawyer's self-confidence, which we'll talk about here shortly. That confidence that he's inheriting eternal life by keeping the works of the law. Jesus emphasizes in the parable four parties, four groups of people. First, the unknown half-dead man, and then the priest, and then the Levite, and then lastly, a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan to the Jews is a half-breed, unclean, cult-following, immoral, Jehovah-denying dog. And I'm not exaggerating. That's really what they believed of the Samaritans. And we discover in the parable that it is the unlikely Samaritan of all people. It's the unlikely Samaritan who shows compassion and, in Jesus' words, proves to be a neighbor. Michael Horton calls the parable a deeply subversive, politically incorrect parable or story. The conclusion then in 36 and 37 is where Jesus asks a final question and then gives a final command. In these verses, it's, we find the whole tale, the whole sort of sad tale come to an end. And not the sad tale of the parable itself, but the sad tale of the lawyer who believes himself righteous because he believes he's able to obey the law as a means, as a means of entering into eternal life. So let's read the text together, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the dialogue between the lawyer and Jesus has been characterized by some commentators as a thinly veiled debate. And in some ways, it's hard not to come to that conclusion. The text tells us that the lawyer is trying to test Jesus and then to justify himself. Other commentators note that Jesus is actually doing something like evangelism, the same sort of evangelism he does with Nicodemus in John 3 or the rich young ruler in Luke 18. The narrative begins with the lawyer asking Jesus a question. The Gospels frequently mention lawyers. There's a few lawyers among the congregation today, so no, no offense to these lawyers. But the lawyers in the New Testament are professional theologians. They're experts in the law of Moses. And this particular lawyer we see has an impure motive. The text says he stands up to put Jesus to the test. But despite his motives, his question really is vitally important then, and it's vitally important today. He asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this particular lawyer has an impure motive, but the question is vitally important. And that question, it's the same question that we see the rich young ruler asking. And, and as I mentioned, it's in Luke 18. And Jesus responds to this important question with a question of his own in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And we might ask Jesus' question like this. What do you think the Bible teaches about inheriting eternal life? How do you answer that? And we know the lawyer answers correctly because Jesus says just this in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. But Jesus, as Jesus often does, throws him a zinger, doesn't he? He tells the lawyer he has answered correctly, but then he adds something to it. He says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. To be sure, we want to be clear that Jesus is not telling the lawyer that obeying the commandments is the way to inherit eternal life. We know this because Jesus elsewhere says the following. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. No, Jesus certainly wasn't telling the lawyer to keep doing his best. Even though the lawyer knew the right answer intellectually, Jesus knew his true motive and his heart. Obviously, this lawyer did not, by faith and faith alone, love God perfectly or love his neighbor perfectly. This lawyer, as it says in verse 29, desired to justify himself. Now, if you moved a few pages further in the Gospel of Luke, you'd come to Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. And there Luke writes about the Pharisees, and he's writing it in the same manner he writes about this lawyer. He says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves. You justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, the lawyer here too exalted himself before men. And he did this right in front of Jesus. He exalted himself before God, trying to justify himself. The lawyer gave the right answer, he knew the right answer. But what Jesus shows us is the lawyer was not doing the right answer. You know, no doubt the lawyer, as a professional theologian, knew the law so well that he could debate temple etiquette. He could, he could discuss the authority of the Sanhedrin. He could, he could debate inheritance rights and piety and the oral law and whether Shammai or Hillel was correct. Uh, the... the The Samaritan, no doubt, in his own mind and based on his own external motions, believed his life was squared away. He had it right. He was in right standing. But what was missing from this Samaritan or this lawyer was a circumcised heart. He was not justified by the Father. He was self-justified, which is no justification at all. Now, Jesus wasn't telling the lawyer to keep doing his best, even though the lawyer probably believed he was. And notice the lawyer doesn't respond to Jesus' command with a humble response like, how do I do that? How do I love God with all my strength? The lawyer didn't respond like Nicodemus when Nicodemus sincerely asked, how can these things be? Instead, the lawyer tries to trap Jesus by asking, who is my neighbor? You think about that question. Below the surface of that question are these implicit questions. Is it just the Jews I am to love? Am I to love only faithful Jews? Is it only the faithful Jews in my particular sect of Judaism that I am to love? In other words, he was asking, just how small is my neighborhood? Just how small is my neighborhood? You know, in one sense, if everyone is your neighbor, no one is your neighbor. And in another sense, if no one is your neighbor, no one is your neighbor. 
In the words of Dr. MacArthur, the purpose of the parable is to crush this guy's self-righteousness. Or as Dr. Duncan puts it, the story was given Jesus, given by Jesus to show a man a deep deficiency in his own heart and a need of saving grace. I would put it this way. The purpose of the parable is to show the lawyer he has lost and that he has never loved nor could love with the kind of love that the Samaritan demonstrates. And you know what else is true that the lawyer may not have considered? Even if he could love a half-dead man one time, could he love with that kind of neighborly love perpetually and perfectly for the rest of his life? The purpose of the parable then is not to improve our social justice or our community service efforts. It is not to make us feel guilty either for not loving and serving every downtrodden person we see as we drive down Belmont. But on the other hand, and I want to press this a bit, on the other hand, we, and, and, I, and we do need to, I think, hold out both hands as we read this Samaritan, it is quite appropriate to ask ourselves when reading this, do I live my life like the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? In other words, it's most appropriate to do a self-check. A self-check on our compassion for others. And it is appropriate when we read this parable to be convicted by our frequent lack of mercy. But the point of the parable is not to turn the lawyer or us into social justice warriors, as I've said, saved by grace but secured by neighborly works. It is not that. But if the parable makes us consider our compassion for the widow, the compa- uh, our compassion for victims, our compassion for the fatherless, our compassion for the abused, I think it's done its work in our hearts. Now let's turn to the parable in verses 30 to 35. Jesus uses the parable to turn the lawyer's question on its head. Remember the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? To justify himself, maybe presumptuously. But Jesus turns it around and it's not about who is your neighbor, but how you can be a neighbor. Jesus begins by using a basic and generic term to describe the victim in verse 30. He says, a certain man. Luke, Luke says, a certain man, I should say, not, not Jesus. And in the Greek, that's just the standard word you're going to use in the first week of learning New Testament Greek, right? Anthropos. We don't know if this guy's in the covenant or outside the covenant. We don't know if he's a Levite or a foreigner. We don't know if he's anyone specific. In fact, he's just some guy. And maybe that's the point. It could be anybody. This certain man is stripped to his outer garments. He's beaten and he's left half dead. And I think we can safely assume that if there wasn't an intervention, he would probably die. In verse 31, we have our first traveler to Jericho, the priest. And what did the priest do? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Sounds like he wasn't in the middle of the road. He was on that side of the road and he saw him and he still went to the far side. Now, 
I suppose each of you has heard a sermon or read a commentary that, that rationalized why the priest didn't help. Some say he didn't want to become unclean. Some say he was just too busy, he was in a hurry, he had to perform some priestly duty. But I think there's nothing really to rationalize here. The priest is a made-up individual in a story. He's an imaginary individual in a simple story. But Jesus uses this priest to make an unequivocal point. And here's the point. The priest didn't put the law of love in practice. The priest didn't believe the half-dead man was his neighbor. It's a simple and direct point. And then the Levite comes strolling by. And he also sees the half-dead man on the side of the road. And what did he do? He did exactly what the priest did. He passed by on the other side. Now, I want to say, though, that it, it is possible that the priest and the Levite simply found it easier not to help, not to help the half-dead man. He just, it just was easier, maybe. Maybe we go too far to try to explain why or why not the priest and Levite didn't. Maybe it was just easier. And that explanation should hit home for us in our day and time. It is simply easier to commit a sin of omission and skip the neighborly work we've been called to. These two religious gentlemen, the priest and the Levite, represent the religious leaders of the day. They could quote Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. They could quote Leviticus 18, 19, just as the lawyer did in his answer to Jesus. They knew the right words to say. And like Paul, they represented those who might claim the following from Philippians 3. They might claim they have confidence in the flesh because they were circumcised on the eighth day. They might claim they were zealous for the law. In fact, they were, no doubt. In terms of righteousness under the law, they believed themselves blameless. But what they didn't do, to state it again, was to put the law of love in practice. They were not doers of the word. They were lawyers of the word. You know what I mean? They could parse the word and debate the word but not loving others as the word so clearly called for them to do. L listen to this, church. They didn't put the law of love in practice, and they were not doers of the word. They were lawyers of the word. They parsed and they debated, but they did not love others as the law so clearly called for them to do. And then at last, following the priest and the Levite, Jesus introduces a Samaritan into the story. This is verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What did this wretched, racially mixed Samaritan do? He had compassion. The word compassion in the Greek means a deep-seated from your gut kind of pity. It connotes a high degree of affection, a, a sort of love and pity that comes from the intestines. Sometimes it's just compassion and it's not heartburn. The Samaritan 
demonstrates in the story, demonstrates the loving Christ-like compassion that our Lord had when he raised people from the dead, when he healed the sick, when he preached, when he fed the hungry, when he cast out demons. Consider Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul is unequivocally clear here in Colossians. Since we are God's chosen ones, we ought put on compassionate hearts. Now, all three of these individuals, the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, they had an opportunity right before them to fulfill the royal law. But only one was a doer of the word and demonstrated a compassionate heart. Only one. And how did he do that? What did the Samaritan do? Well, he went to that certain man. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He set the man on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He even stayed the night with him and gave the innkeeper money to take care of him when he left. Look at verse 35. The Samaritan told the innkeeper that whatever more he needed to spend, he would repay when he returned. You know, I can't, I can't even imagine doing that. I, I can imagine calling 911. But not so far as the Samaritan or did with the unknown man. This, this kind of love, this extraordinary love, is the neighborly love of one neighbor to another. And this is what we see Jesus showing us in, this, in, the, in the Good Samaritan. But let's turn our focus now to Jesus' final question. So immediately after finishing this parable, uh, the parable that, uh, again, Michael Horton says is really a politically incorrect parable. How could, how could you use a Samaritan when a godly priest is walking right by? Jesus' final question is this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The footnote in the Reformation Study Bible makes a really insightful point on this verse, and I want to read it. It says, the issue is not the limits on one's obligation, but the wide extent of one's opportunity to love the neighbor in need. The issue is not the limits on one's obligation, but the wide extent of one's opportunity to love the neighbor in need. The lawyer knew the obvious answer. He acknowledged it was the Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor because, because why? Because he showed mercy. So how does Jesus end the conversation? After the lawyer gives the right answer, he says, go and do likewise. Now that command surely pierced the lawyer to his core. Go, be a neighbor. And this seems like exactly what the lawyer was not doing. And then if you go back to the lawyer's first question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus uses the parable to provide a standard that could never be met perfectly and perpetually. Could any of us love like the Samaritan loved? Jesus pulls the cover on this man's self-justification and uses a despised, hated Samaritan as the example of compassion and of love and of obedience. Again, politically incorrect and subversive. Now remember to the Jews, the Samaritans were half-breed, unclean, cult-following, immoral, Jehovah-denying dogs. And so it is not surprising that in John chapter 8, Jesus' Jewish opponents disparaged him by calling him a Samaritan. And they said that he has a demon. Both of those are in John 8, verse 48. They called him a Samaritan, and they told him he had a demon. Now, let me do something that, no doubt, Pastor Brad's homiletics professor would tell me not to do. Remember, hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting Scripture. We practice exegesis. We draw out of the text rather than reading into the text, which is eisegesis. And there's a proper way to interpret Scripture. So we use hermeneutics to properly interpret Scripture. But homiletics is more of the, the art and the, the artful method of preaching. And I'm going to do something that he would recommend not to do. I do think it's important, though, and relevant because, as I said, Jesus was slandered by being called a Samaritan in John 8, and yet he uses the Samaritan as something of a kind of anti-hero in the parable. So if you'll bear with me, I want you to listen to all the words of Jesus from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. You're welcome to turn there. You're welcome to just listen. Now, I'm not going to include all of the dialogue. There's a back and forth between the, the Jews, uh, I think Pharisees, and Jesus. So a question and answer and a back and forth. I'm going to read just Jesus' words. So I'd like you to hear the Lord's authoritative word, which led his opponents to call him a Samaritan in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you were offspring of Abraham. Abraham. 
yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then in verse 48, the Jews answer him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now this is the Lord of heaven and earth, standing before them, giving them God's word. And their response to these powerful divine words are, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. The Jews called him a demon-possessed cult leader. And how does Jesus respond to being called a demon-possessed cult leader? Jesus responds in verse 49, he says this, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now the parable of the Good Samaritan and this long passage in John 8 Help us to see if there were ever a good Samaritan who could love perfectly and perpetually. It was Jesus. Now, some Bible teachers state explicitly that Jesus is, in fact, in the parable, he is the good Samaritan. But I would say that we need not spiritualize or allegorize Jesus into the parable as if he's the good Samaritan. And yet, my point particularly in reading that long passage, is to, is to help you recognize that it was, it, was, it was the Samaritan who loved like only Jesus could love. Only Jesus could love like the Samaritan loved in the parable. Only, G, only, the, only, only the, the true greater Samaritan, our Lord Jesus, 
could love that half-dead man perfectly, obediently, as only an incarnate God-man could. What I'm saying is that it is Jesus who loved us in eternity past, before there was even a Garden of Eden. It is Jesus who loved us in the Gethsemane Garden as he prepared to endure the wrath of the Father. It is Jesus, the lover of truth, who stood before Pilate and testified. It is Jesus, the lover of our souls, who endured the cross, despising the shame. It is Jesus, the loving and great high priest, who is the perfecter of our faith. It is Jesus, the lover of the elect, faithful and true, who is pictured on a white horse, bringing all history to an end. And it is Jesus who loves like the Samaritan loved the half-dead man. And though we might say that Jesus is something of a greater good Samaritan, we want to we also say what I've already said, that putting Jesus into the parable will not exactly work. And why won't it work? Because if Jesus is represented by the Good Samaritan, then we are certainly not represented by the half-dead man. Men and women on this earth who are not born again and are still represented by Adam as their federal head are not at all like the half-dead man. They're like Lazarus, four days dead. Now, do you know how physically dead Lazarus was? Stay with me here. The homiletics instructor is about to give me an F. Okay? Do you know the human body, when it dies, immediately undergoes physical changes? Now, children, I want you to pay attention to this part. Within one hour, primary flaccidity occurs. That's where your muscles relax. At two to six hours, rigor mortis begins. That's where your body goes stiff and hard. At 7 to 12 hours, rigor mortis is complete. From about 12 hours, something called secondary flaccidity starts, and that's completed within one to three days. So you go from a softening to a hard hardening rigor mortis, and then your body relaxes once again. And then 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs decompose. Three to five days after death, remember how many days was Lazarus dead? Three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and blood-containing foam leaks from the mouth and the nose. The unregenerate are Lazarus, four days dead, but not physically, spiritually. They're not half dead. There's blood-containing foam leaking from their mouth and nose. The infallible word of God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, in, in which you once walked, and you were by nature children of wrath. The unregenerate are not half dead. They are fully, wholly, entirely, spiritually dead. But the greater Samaritan loved a people and brought his chosen ones to spiritual life like he brought Lazarus, to physical life. Ephesians 2 continues in verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In this parable, we may see the good Samaritan typifying our Lord. But the half-dead man is too much alive to be a picture of the lost. Now, let us this morning continue to praise God for his rich mercy and grace. This God of ours saves undeserving, fully dead sinners for his own glory. But now, but now we who are restored by the greater Samaritan, we are alive in Christ. Let us also seek to love others as exemplified by the Good Samaritan. Let us serve and love and show compassion, like Paul calls us to in Colossians 3, especially to those, the Word tells us, in the household of faith. And let us, in the words of Jesus, prove to be a neighbor to the glory of God and through the Spirit of God that indwells us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, which gives us your clear and perfect revealed will. We praise you for this parable, for in it we learn so much about your character, about your holiness, about the, the ridiculousness, even, of self-justification. So we give you praise and honor and glory this morning. May our worship continue during this worship service. Please you and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Ray. I want to invite you all to join with me in standing and responding to the preaching of God's word as we sing a new song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. We're going to let um, the music team lead us in the, they're going to sing through the first verse. We'll just listen so that we get familiar with it, first verse and chorus, and then they'll redo the first verse. So we'll join in on the second time around. <laughs> 